when I'm teaching children how to do calligraphy, which is fancy writing, uh, the way you start is you give them a chisel-tipped pen. You put the pen in their hand so that they hold it at a 45-degree angle to the paper. You start at the top and you make one rounded stretch of a stroke like that. It's not even a real letter, just a part of a letter. You do that with them once, twice, and you say, now do that 25 more times. And after they've done it 25 times, you circle the best ones and you say, now do 25 more like those ones. And you, you do that again and again. And then you add another stroke, just a straight diagonal with the chisel point down at a 45 degree angle. You want them straight. You want them even. You want them exactly one finger width apart. And after they've done 25 more of those, you circle the ones that are best. You say, make 25 more just like that. And then by practicing these strokes, you put the strokes together and you get letters. Because writing in that kind of fancy style isn't so much about writing letters as it is putting strokes together that look like letters. If you're teaching a kid how to play a brass instrument, you start with the easiest note there is to play, okay? It's this one, G. You give them the basics. Put your lips together, say the letter M. Buzz, push air through them. Take the instrument and put it up to your buzzing lips. That's the first word. You play that note. And then they're going to learn two more notes. If you've ever been to a fourth grade music concert, you've heard this song, haven't you? Why is that? Well, you start with the easiest note to play because that's the only one they can play. And then they play those next three notes, because those are the three easiest notes to play again and again and again until every parent is sick of hearing them. Because that's what develops the muscles in the lips so that they have the strength to play notes that are harder to play. And if you don't invest the practice in building up the strength on the easy notes, you never can play the harder notes. Okay, I went to a basketball game recently and um, I saw the girls and guys teams from Cornerstone play and I noticed that there were players dribbling the basketball with both hands. And Paul, I would very much like to learn how to do that. Would you help me with this please? Come right up here and I know that Paul is able to do this, but I can't, how, show me how you dribble the ball with both hands. Just, all right. Well, you, can, you seem to be able to do that equally well with either hand. Let me try. So I can, I can do this. This, this one I'm not, I'm not so good at. I have, I'm, I'm right-handed, so I can do it with my right hand, but I, there must be a trick to learning how to do it with your left hand, right? Just practice. Just practice? Just practice. 
Just, just repetition, just, oh, so there's no trick? There's just practice. That's what we need to know, thank you. Are you getting the point? Um, we have a Nazarene problem that's long-standing in our denominational heritage. It's thinking about spirituality as if it's only crisis experiences. We think that the only way to make spiritual progress forward is to come to the altar and for God to do something externally to us, and then in the next minute we're gonna measure up. Now it is true that the work of spiritual progress is always God's work in us, but we cooperate with grace. And that cooperation with grace takes practice. And you know, at the very fundamental root of it, you know what the word practice means? Repetition. Repetition in obedience to the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to talk about is about what it means to practice. What it means to train. What, what type of regimen we might take on to cooperate with the grace of God. You say... Pastor Dan, is this another one of your harebrained ideas? Let me read the scripture. 1 Timothy 4, beginning with verse 6. If you put these instructions before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the words of faith and of the sound teaching that you have followed. Did you hear that? Nourished. So we're bringing in health. We're bringing in the things that sustain us. Nourished on the words of faith and of the sound teaching that you have followed, have nothing to do with profane myths and old wives' tales. Train yourself in godliness. For while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and struggle, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. These are the things you must insist on and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. This is Paul saying, now until I arrive, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you through the prophecy with the laying on of hands. Verse 15, put these things into practice. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Pay, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Continue in these things for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Train yourself for godliness. Why is it such an odd concept for us that we must be trained for godliness? There was a day in our culture where we used to practice virtue in mottos and slogans. We used to say things to our kids and to one another like this. If you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. Facebook would close if that were the case, right? 
If you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. At, at some level, that is a, a moral discipline, almost a spiritual discipline. We, we've said other things like that, not so much today, but not too many years ago, we said things like, don't talk about someone behind their back, or don't toot your own horn, or pride goes before a fall, or don't speak ill of the dead, or you don't have to tell everything you know, or loose lips sink ships, or haste makes waste, or lie down with dogs and wake up with fleas, or actions speak louder than words, or honesty is the best policy, or no pain, no gain, or practice makes perfect. We used to say those things, and we would repeat them and rehearse them so they would work their way into our minds to the place where we actually did those things. We actually caught ourselves saying something behind someone's back and made ourselves shut up. We, we disciplined ourselves. We used those types of mottos to help us move forward on the path of virtue. You know, you don't have to be Christian to live by the wisdom of Christianity or to attempt to be virtuous. And practicing the wisdom of Christianity isn't the same thing as being Christian. I mean, you understand the difference, right? You can choose to pursue virtue without choosing to pursue Christ. But if you do that, you're just pursuing a human discipline. If you're going to be Christian, then you need to follow the ways of the Holy Spirit, which is a whole different approach to things. It is submitting myself to God and living in obedience to what the Holy Spirit reveals to me so that he sets the agenda for my transformation. That means I'm, I'm practicing at the same time living out a relationship with the instructor. It's a different kind of practice. You know, in the past several weeks, we've talked about some of these concepts that deal with transforming our, the transformation of our hearts. We've talked about taking every thought captive to obey Christ, refusing to let our thought life be controlled by others, by our adversaries, by our circumstances, exercising our first freedom to choose the thing we will dwell on in our mind. We may not choose every thought that comes to our mind, but we can choose what we will continue to dwell on once thoughts appear in our mind. And we can cast thoughts out, and we can replace them with other thoughts. We can take every thought captive in order to obey Christ. We've also talked about refusing to be mastered by our feelings. Though, though feelings are very powerful things, and though we may not exercise control over them completely, we can take steps to replace the root causes of our feelings. We can address the underlying conditions and the, the settled convictions of our lives that fuel many of our feelings. And by replacing or correcting some of those foundational aspects of our life with the truth of God's word and the experience of God and the experience revealed through the lives of the saints with God through history, we can tune ourselves to the goodness and power of God, which can begin to change the way we feel about our circumstances. 
We talked about getting a clear picture of what the kingdom of God and life in the kingdom of God really looks like. His, his peaceable, his eternal, his unshakable kingdom. And with that vision, with a true vision of what life in the kingdom looks like, coupled with our intention to live as citizens of that kingdom and to appropriate the means, the opportunities that come in order to do that, our lives begin to change. And we've talked about the fact that our hearts will never know the transforming power of the Holy Spirit until we are willing to sacrifice our own pride and our own will and accept his leadership in our life. At a very fundamental level, we must be willing to deny ourselves and accept his leading. All of these things are important if we're going to be transformed. But the thing we haven't talked as much about is repetition. Rote. Doing it again and again and again. Isn't really that what practice is? It's just repetition. Do the right thing again and again and again. One of the things they teach you in music school very quickly is correct every mistake you make so that you don't practice your mistakes. Have you ever felt like you practiced your mistake? You think you've learned a lesson only to do the same thing again? We have to reject this notion of practicing mistakes and do the right thing again and again and again. We only really build appropriate good habits by practicing what is right. Paul says it this way, if grace superabounds, should we just go on sinning so that we can receive more grace from God? By no means, he says. We don't look for additional grace by begging God to give it to us by sinning. We ask for his help to do the right thing again and again and again. This is what Dallas Willard says. Renovation of the heart is a matter of opening ourselves up to cultivating love, joy, and peace. First by receiving them from God and, by, and from those living in him, and then by extending them, joy, love, and peace, to others. We do not approach the change the other way around, trying first to root out our destructive feelings. That's the common mistake of worldly wisdom. Love, joy, and peace fostered in divine fellowship crowd out fear, anger, unsatisfied desire, woundedness, and rejection. What, what Willard is suggesting to us as an agenda is rather than trying to figure out what our destructive thoughts are so we can develop a habit to get rid of them, it's give all of our attention to living in the love, peace, and joy of the Father and extending that to as many people as possible. To receive it first from the Father. You do that in worship, you do that in the Word. But hopefully, because we have a community of followers of Christ here, you receive that from one another. The support and the encouragement that naturally comes from the people of God is something that we should receive and embrace. And as we receive the love, joy, and peace of God in our hearts and we receive it from one another, 
We are filled with this love and joy that we purposefully extend to others. And in that process of being filled with the love, peace, joy of God, of being shared within the body of Christ, we find ourselves, well, we find those qualities to exclude, to push out the negative feelings. Worship is a practice of a certain kind. Week after week, day after day, we bring ourselves into the presence of a loving God to consider his goodness, his power, his majesty, his patience, his forgiveness. This exercise reminds us of how much we've benefited from God. If we worship daily rather than weekly, we would live more fully in the love, joy, and peace of God. But worship isn't the only kind of practice in view here. Remember all those maxims that I went through? Some might apply to you, some might not. But as you live in Scripture, you're going to hear the Holy Spirit speak to you about particular areas of your life if you're listening. And if he speaks to you about a particular issue, it's time to consider preparing a discipline, to, to consider, Spirit, how can I cooperate with you in addressing this area of my life? I mean, some of the generic disciplines that exist in our fellowship are things like Sunday school. I mean, Sunday school is a, a routine event that places us in close proximity to the Word of God and to other saints. Small group discussions is a kind of discipline that forces us to consider God's Word in a very personal context. Conversation about the Word of God and my embrace of it are important things to discuss with other Christians. Celebrate recovery is a discipline especially step groups that force a person to place themselves next to the word of God and to take inventory, to take note of the dissonance. Daily Bible reading, daily prayer, daily meditation, all of these are, are disciplines that I can embrace that help me cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I guess where I'm winding up as I walk through these thoughts through Paul's words to Timothy is the fact that probably each of us really ought to have a discipline. There ought to be some ongoing discipline, some, something we're practicing to cooperate with the work of the Spirit in our lives. I mean, if you think about it for a second, if we're not really practicing anything, it's sort of like saying the Holy Spirit's not really working on anything in me. Like I've arrived. Like I don't need to practice anything else because you know, I've, I'm arrived and I'm all there and I'm fine. But I don't know any Christian like that. Haven't met one yet. And if the Holy Spirit is occasionally talking to me about this or that, I should be, my, my response should be, well, Holy Spirit, how? How do we work on this together? What? What do I add? What do I do? What, what practice do I embrace that's going to take me in the direction that you're hinting that I should go? The discipline ought to match up with what the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in my life. I think you begin by embracing the discipline of receiving 
and extending the love of God to others. Not sure where to start with all this? Not, not sure where you need transformation? This is what Willard says. As we receive love, joy, and peace from God and people, and then practice extending that to others, the destructive feelings that still linger in our heart will become immediately visible to us. You understand what he's saying? If, if, I'm, if I'm making it my practice to demonstrate the love, the peace, and the joy to other people that I meet, I'm consciously attempting to do that. The minute I find it hard to do that, it's gonna stick out like a sore thumb. I'm gonna know, oh, this love, joy, and peace that I've been trying to extend to others, I'm having trouble extending here. And I should be saying at that moment, oh, now what's that? What, what's the Spirit saying to me here? Why is it difficult for me to extend the love, joy, and peace of God to that particular person? Is it something about them? Is it something they've done? Is it a grudge that I'm carrying? What, what's involved? Is, is there an insecurity that I have when I'm around that person? Why does that person rub me the wrong way? Lord, what is this? And I promise you, that is the prayer that the Lord loves to answer for us. He wants to help us understand why we're having this difficulty putting his love, peace, and joy into practice because remember, that's his whole goal in creation, to love his creation. And if we're not able to accomplish his goal, there's some type of log jam or something messing up the works here, and he would like that straightened out. And he would like to straighten that out in you so that you can effectively demonstrate and execute the love, peace, and joy that he has in mind for us. The resources to love are always found in the Holy Spirit. When we talk about what the Holy, Spring, the Holy Spirit brings to us when he enters our lives, we say he comes and gives us the ability to love others that the love of God takes up residence in us when the Holy Spirit comes. And so all the resources we need in order to be able to love others are found in God if we will appropriate them. So we don't have to work up the love. God will give us that if we intend on exercising it. But if we don't intend on exercising it, what's the point of having the extra love? Right? If, if we're never forgiving that one, or if you, if you only knew what they did to me or to my family, or if, if we're going to carry baggage like that, the love of God is never going to get through. But, but he, that's the transformation that he wants to do in us. So when we recognize that sore thumb, we ask for God's help, and we ask for his help in putting the expression of love into action. And so I'm curious, you know, what is it that you're practicing? What is it that's being practiced in your mind? Are you practicing negative or destructive thoughts? Are you repeating those in your mind? Or are you practicing the goodness, the love, and joy, and peace of God? Considering it. You know, at Cornerstone, we talk about our our outcomes for ideal students, one of the things we talk about is we want our students to be lifelong learners. 
I think it's always interesting that what we want for our kids, we don't always want for ourselves. But we don't have a sense that we've arrived at some standard of godliness that will be sufficient for the rest of our days, do we? I mean, if anyone, if any people are lifelong learners, it's us. We will never explore the depth and dimensions of God completely. We will never know the measure of his goodness, of his compassion, of his mercy, of his forgiveness. But that shouldn't stop us from trying. We need to be lifelong learners. And lifelong learning requires practice. I mean, if you have kids, you know that they're always practicing something these days. Soccer, basketball, art, instruments. Um, We're not exempt from learning as adults, are we? I think, I think what Paul's telling us is train yourself. Embrace the practices that lead to godliness. Which means then, and here's the hard part, I wonder why it's such an offensive question to ask your brother and sister in Christ what they're in training for. I mean, we don't really want to talk about that, do we? Because that would be to admit our weakness, right? And we'd rather not admit our weakness. And I, and I don't think I'm saying that our relationship with every person we meet ought to be that open and vulnerable. But there should be at least two or three people in your life who have permission to ask you, what are you practicing? What are you, what are you training for? Where are you and the Holy Spirit working to move your life forward? Where, where are you expanding in grace? How are, you, how are you doing more to receive the love and the peace and joy of God so that you're able with greater capacity to share that with others. How, how are you doing with that? Who, who's asking you that question? Well, I've discovered that in the classroom setting, if I know the teacher's going to call on me, I prepare an answer ahead of time. Because you hate to you know, you know, what's the answer to the problem? Uh, what book are we in? I mean, you don't want to look like an idiot by not having an answer. And so it may just be that if you have people in your life who you've given permission to say to you, what are you practicing, it may provide just a little extra motivation to be practicing something, to be listening for what the Holy Spirit's saying, to be cooperating with the grace of God being shed in your life. I had one professor say to me, I don't know where this came from, he said, you know, if the God of the universe is going to speak to you, you ought to be prepared to take notes. We should be listening to what he said, not just trusting it to memory and hoping we, don't, hoping we don't lose it. But if God's speaking, if God's trying to stretch us, we should be cooperating, we should be practicing, and if we need the help of others to practice, we should be seeking that help. Because that's what it means to grow in Christ. 
That's what, that's what holiness is, to become more like Christ. So I don't know what, I don't know what discipline you ought to be practicing. I don't know what new area of discovery the Holy Spirit has for you. But I'll say this. In a moment we're going to sing a song to close, but I'll say this. I hope by Wednesday you have an answer to the question. Because I think what Lent is, is the opportunity to remember you're going to be asked the question. You're going to be asked, what are you doing for Lent? And I'd like you all to prepare your answer. To begin thinking about what you're going to practice for Lent. It may be that I'm going to practice that motto that doesn't even come from the Bible. It is, honesty is the best policy. There's plenty of folks around who just lie a lot. And honesty is the best policy. Maybe that's the spiritual discipline the Holy Spirit's challenging you on, your, your, your level of honesty. Or it may be kindness is the best policy. Maybe that's it. Maybe there are folks in your life who... I was going to use the Alice crammed metaphor, but I knew most of you weren't old enough to remember it. Um, I don't know what that practice should be for you. Only two folks know it, you and the Holy Spirit, right? And, and if you consider it, if you linger there, if you ask the Father, search me, know my heart, help me, and if you begin by immersing yourself in the peace, love, and joy of God, you're going to arrive at a place where the practice you need becomes obvious, I think. And if you need a friend or two to help you negotiate that, find them. They're here. But let's see if we can answer that question by Wednesday so we can launch Lent with a discipline in mind where we're going to focus as we lead up to Easter. You come. Heavenly Father, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and to speak truth to our hearts. We've committed our way to you. We've abandoned ourselves to you and we ask, Holy Spirit, that if there's an area of transformation necessary at this moment, you'd reveal it to us and you would suggest to us the practices that would help us learn obedience to you. For that's our desire. We know that in that, there's fulfillment, there's meaning, there's contentment, Lord. And we know that it is a right and good thing to obey you at all times and in every place. And so we ask for your help. Lord, we ask for your help to increase our perception of your love and joy and peace and to live in the harmony of those things. So what is necessary, Lord, to do that, we pray you bring that to our minds, that we would increase the love, joy, and peace we share with one another, and the love, joy, and peace we receive from you, that out of the superabundance of that in our hearts, we'd be willing to extend the same to others. This is our prayer, Lord, that our hearts would be transformed that we might more and more reflect the image of Christ. 
We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. And now may the peace of Christ guard your hearts to the glory of God now and forever. Amen.